science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and Welcome, everyone, on this uh, beautiful Father's Day. And uh, it's time, of course, to celebrate fatherhood, which I'm very happy to do. Uh, I got early morning calls from all three of my daughters, and uh, I hope that all of you other fathers there got similar uh, contacts with your kids today. Anyway, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and we get together here every Sunday afternoon to talk about uh, what is going on in the world of science. And uh, I also try to tantalize you with some questions so that we can get into some interesting discussions. Here's the question for today. I'll start out with two of them. Where did the gossamer albatross land? Where did the gossamer albatross land? And uh, the second question, as I started today, is what was the Archimedes heat ray? What was the Archimedes heat ray? If you know the answers to those, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to me at 514-800. All kinds of uh, uh, things happening in, in the news. Uh, uh, obviously, COVID is still with us. The vaccines uh, apparently are doing a very good job as the numbers keep uh, going down. Uh, that hasn't stopped uh, the conspiracy theorists from their bizarre ideas. Uh, the Montreal Gazette had a very, very good uh, series uh, about all of the misinformation that is available out there, uh, which is is just, uh, just stunning. And... Uh, you may have seen also this past week, many of the uh, uh, social media uh, blogs, as well as uh, mainstream media, reported on a study that was published in Environmental Science and Technology Letters about fluorinated compounds in North American cosmetics. And uh, the story here is that a number of so-called perfluoroalkyl substances, PFASs as we abbreviate them, were detected in a number of cosmetics. And uh, this, of course, is a concern because we know that these PFASs at a certain concentration can indeed cause problems. Some of them are endocrine disruptors. Uh, some have been uh, linked with carcinogenicity. But you have to appreciate the fact that there are roughly 5,000 of these compounds that have been um, uh, synthesized, and they are quite different in their molecular structure. And everything in chemistry, of course, depends on molecular structure. And um, in this particular case, some of these PFASs have longer carbon skeletons than others, and they will have totally different properties. Whether or not the ones that are found in, in cosmetics are, are doing any harm is, is, at this point, impossible to say. As I have often suggested, the presence of a chemical is not the same as the presence of risk. That requires a lot deeper uh, investigation. We would have to know whether or not people who use cosmetics have a higher level of uh, PFASs in their blood. And then furthermore, we'd have to investigate whether or not having that higher level 
is enough to cause some kind of uh, ill effect. These are almost unanswerable uh, questions. And of course, we are exposed to these perfluoro compounds in all kinds of other situations as well, in our stain-free uh, furniture fabrics, in our stain-free carpets, in uh, all kinds of um, uh, Teflon cookware. Now, not in the cookware itself per se, but the manufacture of the cookware requires uh, the use of uh, of uh, small uh, perfluoro compounds that may then end up in the environment. In the case of Teflon, the finished polymer does not release any uh, any PFASs. But there are firefighting foams, of course. Uh, PFASs are used in, in the uh, uh, fabrication of computer chips. So it's not surprising that they end up in the environment. Exactly what it is that they are doing to us is, is at this point just impossible to say. But I think we can say that they're not likely to be doing any good. So that uh, any attempt to cut down on the use of these substances would be welcome. But uh, some are some uses are essential, some are not. Implantable medical devices, you know, the heart assist devices and, and uh, various kinds of, of uh, structural material used to, to uh, uh, repair bone. I mean, these, these things are absolutely necessary and uh, you cannot eliminate them. However, cosmetics, that's a different story. In many cases, though, they're not put into cosmetics on purpose. They're just contaminants of some of the other substances that are used in cosmetics. And uh, uh, when they are put in there on purpose, they do a great deal of, 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 of good as far as the cosmetic goes because it makes it last longer. It makes it more impermeable to water because these chemicals are water uh, resistant. So we'll have to see how uh, this uh, plays out. Uh, I think that removing them from cosmetics uh, is certainly uh, a possibility because not all the ones tested contain them anyway. So it's possible to have functional cosmetics without the uh, PFASs. But to remove them totally from the environment is, is not possible because there are too many legitimate uses uh, of these chemicals. So right now, I mean, I wouldn't be too concerned about uh, their presence in cosmetics because uh, in... in uh, comparison to exposure to these substances from all of the other uh, uh, contaminants in the environment, is, uh, cosmetics plays a, a very, very uh, small role. So uh, it's uh, certainly an interesting study, and it was well done, but I don't think that this is something that we need to panic over uh, right now. Uh, some other things that, uh, you know, uh, in, in the news, the <clears throat> continuing story about uh, coffee and caffeine, about whether or not coffee is good for us, is it not good for us, etc. And uh, there have been a large number of recent studies on, on coffee. And uh, most of them, in fact, come down on the positive side, suggesting that uh, that cup of joe uh, may be doing us some good. There have been studies that have shown that uh, people who drink three or four cups of coffee a day are protected against uh, Parkinson's disease, against type 2 diabetes, gallstones. And the more interesting one is depression. Uh, coffee drinkers seem to have uh, lower rates of, uh, of depression. And in a study, very interesting study, that involved more than 200,000 participants who were followed for 30 years, those who drank three to five cups of coffee a day, and it didn't matter if this was regular or decaf coffee, they were 15% less likely to die early from all causes, 
uh, than people who didn't drink coffee at all. And uh, it's hard to know, you know, what what to make of that. I mean, this is just a statistical observation. But uh, what is really interesting here is uh, the dramatic decrease, about a 50% reduction in the risk of suicide among uh, people who were moderate coffee drinkers. And uh, maybe somehow, you know, this uh, drinking the coffee uh, boosts the level of uh, some chemicals in the brain that have um, anti-depressant uh, uh, effects. Uh, of course, uh, there are some uh, times when you do have to be careful about the caffeine consumption, and uh, pregnancy would be one of those because caffeine does cross the placenta into the fetus, and uh, that can increase the risk of miscarriage and low birth weight and uh, premature birth. So I think during pregnancy, one wants to be very careful about uh, uh, coffee. There are some other concerns that um, uh, are around about coffee, and one that I, I need to pay attention to because I must admit that I am somewhat guilty uh, with this because I do use the, the pods. Uh, every morning I do have my uh, coffee and I use uh, either, you know, the Nespresso or the Keurig uh, pods, pods. And uh, there's a question about, you know, the risk to the environment about these uh, things which are, are made of aluminum. Now, I do my best. I, I collect them all and I do send them back and supposedly they they do recycle them. Uh, well, they are recyclable anyway. That doesn't always mean that they do recycle them, but I hope that they, they do. So anyway, I, I don't think that uh, there is any uh, reason for me to give up my uh, morning cup of joe and maybe even have an afternoon one. The benefits seem to outweigh the risks. Now, in some, some cases, uh, for some people, caffeine can cause palpitations. If it does that, then, of course, uh, uh, you have to be aware and, and uh, perhaps cut down on the amount of, of coffee. But uh, at this stage, it, it turns out that uh, the benefits of drinking coffee outweigh any risk. And it may be due to the uh, large uh, amount of antioxidants that are present in, in coffee. And in fact, coffee turns out to be the greatest source of antioxidants in the North American diet, not because weight per weight it is the greatest source, but because we drink so much coffee. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let me go to Peter, see if he has an answer or wants an answer. Hey, Peter. Uh, hey, Dr. Joe. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Thank you. So I uh, just had the answer to Archimedes' uh, question, that heat ray. Wasn't that a device that the ancient engineer Archimedes had devised so that he could burn Roman galleons with like some kind of gigantic mirror reflecting the sun's rays? Yes, that's what it was. And uh, the story is that he had a large array of highly polished bronze or copper shields. They, they didn't have uh, mirrors as, as we know them in those days, oh, okay. but they were able to polish metal, metals so that mm. they would really be highly reflective. And he used these to focus sunlight onto a ship, uh, Roman ships that were attacking Syracuse and set them on fire. Now, the question is, could this really have happened or is it a myth? 
And uh, back in 1973, a Greek scientist, Yanis Sakas, uh, actually ran an experiment at a naval base uh, in, in, in Greece. And he used 70 mirrors with a copper coating, uh, each one about uh, five by three feet, as, as the uh, shields would have been. And he pointed them at a plywood mock-up of a Roman warship. And it was about 50 meters away. And when he focused the mirrors from the bright sun, the ship burst into, into flames. But the ship had been coated with tar, which uh, was legitimate because the Romans would have done that as well to, to uh, prevent water from seeping in. Wow. And uh, anyway, it's uh, you know a possibility. But then Mythbusters took a look at this. And uh, they have a whole episode on this on, on TV. And uh, they used 500 school children who aimed mirrors at a mock-up uh, uh, Roman sailing ship. And they couldn't uh, set it on fire. They, they did uh, uh, cause the wood to smolder a little bit, but it would not burst into flames. So mm. they kind of said that this myth was busted. So that's where it stands. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Archimedes obviously was most famous for the gold crown experiment. Of course. When, but he, uh, also, yeah. he also did work in hydraulics, right? Oh, absolutely. The Archimedes screw. Yeah. Uh, was um, was a very, very clever device uh, that was hand-cranked to raise water to a higher level. So it was a tube. Uh, inside of it was uh, sort of a cork-like uh, uh, screw. And when it was turned, it would uh, bring up water or, in fact, any solid material like grain from a lower level to a higher level. And wow. it's still used, still used today. Uh, yeah, Archimedes was certainly a, a very, very clever man. Whether or not the story about the gold crown uh, actually happened, uh, hard, hard to say. He never recorded that, and the story did not appear till 200 years after Archimedes' death. But anyway, the, the um, supposed uh, business was that King Hero uh, commissioned uh, Archimedes to find out whether or not uh, the gold that he had given to a goldsmith to formulate into a crown had been adulterated with silver, with the goldsmith supposedly stealing some of the gold. Mm. And uh, when uh, Archimedes was thinking about this, he had an idea when he got into the bathtub and he noticed that the level of the water went up when he got into the bathtub. And then he ran naked through the street yelling, <laughs> Eureka, Eureka, meaning I have found it. Uh, because uh, what, what of course, he realized that, that uh, the level of the water goes up by a volume equal to the volume of whatever is submerged in it. And so his idea was to take the uh, gold crown, submerge it in water, measure uh, the volume by seeing how much of the uh, water level rose, and then weighing the gold crown, dividing it by the volume to find its density to see if it was the density of gold. And according to the story, it turns out that it wasn't, meaning that the gold was adulterated with silver and the goldsmith was made to pay heavily for this. Anyway, that's the way the story goes. But uh, Archimedes was uh, uh, certainly a brilliant uh, engineer, mathematician, and the, the Archimedes screw is very well documented and the story about the polished bronze and copper shields uh, could have, in, in theory, happened. So that's where that stands. And uh, so I have one other question now that is still hanging out there, and that is about the 
gossamer albatross and where did it land? And uh, as is my usual practice, when a question gets answered, I replace it by another one. What is the pull of gravity an astronaut on the International Space Station feels relative to what he or she would feel on the surface of the Earth? Okay, so I want to know the pull of gravity on the International Space Station relative to what would be felt on the surface of the Earth. And again, if you know the answer to that, you give us a question or give us a call at 514-790-0800. Uh, you can also text me to uh, 514-800. Uh, All right. Uh, I did uh, ask a question this morning on, on the radio, and it was all about the sous vide uh, technique, which is a technique of, of cooking, uh, whereby you place the food in a plastic bag and immerse it in water at um, a very, very carefully controlled temperature, and usually let it cook for quite some time in order to get a very flavorful and tasty meal. And uh, the question that I asked was, what chemical reaction does not occur when you are carrying out sous vide cooking? And the answer to that is the Maillard reaction. Well, the Maillard reaction is a very, very interesting uh, reaction, and it is named after a French chemist and uh, by the name of uh, Louis Maillard, uh, who discovered this reaction in 1912 when he was carrying out some experiments with proteins. The Maillard reaction involved the reaction of amino acids in food with carbohydrates in the food. And when these two react, they produce a large array of, uh, of compounds, which tend to be mostly brown and which are also very flavorful. The reason that the uh, crust of bread looks the way it does, and the reason that it tastes the way it does is because of the Maillard reaction. And uh, when you cook a steak, the reason that the steak has that, that brown coloring on the outside, and if you grill it, the grill lines, is because what you're noticing is the Maillard reaction in, in, um, in action. But the Maillard reaction only occurs at temperatures above 135 degrees Celsius. And when you're cooking sous vide, you're cooking at a temperature that is much lower than that. You're cooking at a temperature lower than the boiling point of water. And uh, that's why uh, after sous vide cooking, there may be very flavorful and juicy uh, meats. However, they do not have the, the brown crust, which not only gives it an appearance, but it also contributes to the flavor. So very commonly, chefs who engage in sous vide cooking will very quickly sear the meat after they have removed it from the plastic bag. And they claim that in this way, you get uh, uh, perfect flavor and you also get the coloring. Uh, very interesting. And there's a lot of technology involved in, uh, in sous vide cooking. Uh, there are also a lot of questions that are asked about sous vide cooking, about whether or not the plastic bags can leach any undesirable chemicals into the food. I think that that is not the case because generally these bags are made of polyethylene and that does not lead to any leaching of estrogenic compounds. Uh, that's a worry that is legitimate with other plastics such as polycarbonates or polyvinyl chloride, but those are not used in, in sous vide cooking. 
However, there's a further story about sous vide cooking, and that is the way that it was discovered. And that will take us back uh, about 200 years uh, into Bavaria. But before we get into that, we're going to take a break and check the CTV news. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. I've got several uh, text questions here that uh, I will try to answer. Uh, one about uh, vaccination. How can we attribute the downward trend of COVID cases to vaccines when last summer showed a similar trajectory without any vaccination? Uh, that actually statistically is, is not correct. Uh, although there was a downward trend uh, last summer, it was nothing like what we are seeing now. The number of uh, positive tests was much, much larger uh, last summer than it is now. Uh, the vaccines indeed are working. Then someone wants to know about the benzene in the sunscreens. That was a, a news story that made a lot of splash uh, last week uh, because uh, in a study of a large number of sunscreens, uh, some of them were found to contain uh, small amounts of benzene. Benzene, of course, is a highly toxic substance. We don't want it in the environment. But um, as you well know, the dose makes the poison. And the amount that is found in the sunscreens is very, very little, less than one, one part per million. It is uh, hard to imagine that uh, that is going to have any any effect. Uh, we don't know if uh, there's any significant increase in blood levels of benzene in people who, who use uh, uh, these sunscreens. In any case, the benefits of using the sunscreen, of course, outweigh any risk. However, uh, the study was very important in the sense that it alerted uh, manufacturers to the fact that there is benzene in there. Now, of course, nobody puts benzene into sunscreen on, on purpose. It is in there as a contaminant because many of the ingredients that are found in, in sunscreen uh, are sourced from petroleum. Uh, of course, the raw materials are sourced from petroleum and then through various synthetic processes, they are converted to the final product that are used in the sunscreens. And it is possible that benzene is an original contaminant in the petroleum and some of it ends up in the final product. However, given the fact that not all of the sunscreens tested contain benzene, it is obviously possible to produce them without benzene. So that's the importance of this study, that it alerts manufacturers that they should be checking their processes to ensure that uh, they can rid their products of, of benzene. But once again, I would not lose sleep uh, over this, and I would certainly not stop using sunscreens because uh, of the trace amounts of benzene that were found in, um, in some of them. Um, okay, let me just go to uh, Ed on the line. Hi, Ed. Hi. Uh, I, too, have a question about temperature of uh, food. Um, how hot does food in a microwave get? It depends on, on what you are cooking. Most of the time, it does not go above 100 degrees, that is Celsius, because what the microwave does is it heats up water. And water, of course, cannot go to a temperature higher than 100 degrees unless it's under pressure, as in a pressure cooker, but that doesn't happen in the microwave oven. However, if you have some fat in the food, 
the fat can also be heated by microwaves, and in that case, the fat can go to a higher temperature. But as a general rule, when you're cooking in a microwave, the food is full of moisture. So the, the maximum temperature is 100 degrees. Now, how high does it get if it's beyond that? I mean, if it's fat or something else? If you have a lot of fat in the food, it uh, might go up to 110, 120. Okay. It might. But you'd have to have an awful lot of fat. And, and generally, uh, you would not cook you know, that kind of food in the microwave oven. I mean, you don't cook sticks of butter in the microwave oven. No, I'm, I'm talking right. about heating it up. It would be the same thing, right? Um, no, if you're just heating, if you're just heating something up, it, it uh, will not even reach a hundred. Okay. And how hot uh, does a pressure cooker get? You made me curious. Well, the pressure cooker, of course, it depends on on uh, you know just how much water you have in there to to create the pressure. But you you certainly can raise the the boiling point of water by four or five degrees in a pressure cooker. And that but, that can be very significant in terms of cooking times. Just by four or five degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now the space station question. I'm guessing it's virtually nothing in terms of uh, gravity. Is that? Um, You're close. My, it's it's not nothing. It's about ninety percent. It's about ninety percent. So uh, you know, people have this uh, this notion that in the space station or when you're generally in orbit around the Earth, that it's uh, uh, what they call zero G, right? And that that really is a misnomer uh, because the gravity at, at that uh, altitude is roughly 90% of what it is at the surface of the Earth. But the reason that an astronaut doesn't feel anything and, and is in a weightless uh, situation is not because of a decrease in gravity but because the forward motion is so fast that it cancels out the pull of gravity. And of course, a, a, a common analogy here is that if you take a, a bucket of water and you tie a rope to it and you start swinging it around your head, if you swing it fast enough, the water will stay in, in, in the bucket. That's basically what we're looking at in, in orbit. So that space station is sort of in continuous free fall around the Earth. And that's why there is no pull that the astronauts feel. But uh, now we're, they, we're, um, we're the space, space station to remain stationary, I, I, theoretically, of course. Um, what would happen then? What would happen? Well, it would, 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 it would uh, crash back down to Earth. No, no, I, I mean, I don't, theoretically, I mean, if, if that didn't happen, would, uh, would, would weightlessness almost disappear if it's 90% of yes, gravity? Yes, yes, yes. Really? Uh, but it's an impossible situation. Because the the only reason that the space station stays where it is is because its forward motion cancels out the pull of gravity. So as soon as the forward motion starts to be reduced, it will come crashing back down to Earth. I mean, that's that's what eventually happens to satellites. Because although we say that uh, there's no air, uh, you know, in space, that isn't literally true. There is a small amount of air, uh, you know, at the, the height of 100, 200 miles where these things uh, orbit the Earth. And eventually, friction against that air will slow down the satellite and uh, it will come crashing back down to Earth. As we saw, for example, just uh, two weeks ago with the Chinese rocket, which uh, came back down uh, to Earth after it fell out of orbit. So Why as, then? as long as the forward motion is maintained at 17,500 miles per hour, which of course is, is obviously very fast, the forward motion cancels out the pull of gravity. 
So why did um, on the moon landing? Why were why was there very little gravity there? Because is that forward motion too, or no? No, the moon the moon is much much smaller than the Earth, so the pull of gravity there is much much less. It's about but one sixth. But doesn't the Earth's gravity act there too? Um, because it's close to the Earth, or not? It's so it's beyond ninety. No, no. I mean, the closer you get to the Moon, the closer you get to the Moon, the more the Moon's gravity takes over, and because gravity, of course, is a function of distance, and as you move away from Earth, the gravity gets less and less. I mean, even uh, even though, as I said, at you know about a hundred miles above the Earth, it's nine, it's ninety percent the same as the uh, as on the surface of the Earth. But of course, as you move into deeper space and you get thousands of miles away from Earth, the pull of Earth's gravity becomes very, very small. Gravity is a function of, of the masses involved and the distance that separates them. And as the further you move from the Earth, the smaller the gravity becomes. It's just that in Earth orbit, that distance is too small to have uh, you know, a significant reduction in, uh, in the pull of gravity, okay? All right, so that that question has uh, has been answered. Uh, let me replace it with another uh, question. Uh, bicycle helmets are made of a hard outer shell and an inner impact absorbing foam. What are the two plastics that are used? That is, what is the plastic for the harder outer shell and what is the plastic for the inner absorbing foam? Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, before we get back to hopefully your answers to those questions and uh, some further thoughts on uh, cooking sous vide, uh, we're going to check what traffic is all about out there. Stay with us. I'm Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are Okay, I have some comments from someone I suspect is an anti-vaxxer uh, who says that the, uh, the positive cases at this time last summer were almost the same as now. That is not true worldwide. It may be true in, in, uh, in Quebec, but certainly not true worldwide. And the num what is really important is the number of serious cases, people who were hospitalized. Uh, which were far greater last summer than than so far now. The vaccines work. Uh, the rates of uh, infection are going down everywhere. The rates of hospitalization are going down everywhere. And uh, do not listen to the anti-vaxxers who, who try to fool you into thinking that uh, the situation exactly the same now with the vaccines that it was uh, last summer. This is just not so. We have uh, hardly anyone in uh, a serious situation now in, in the um, uh, IC wards. Anyway. All right. Uh, now, I told you that I was going to get back to the uh, sous vide cooking because I, I think it's very interesting. And let me go back to 1802 and uh, this comment. <clears throat> when I tasted the meat, I was very much surprised indeed to find it very different, both in taste and flavor from any I had ever tasted. That was from Essays in Political, Economical, and Philosophical Discussions, published in 1802 by Sir Benjamin Thompson, uh, who launched the science of low-temperature cooking 
Uh, and a couple of centuries later, that indeed would become the sous vide technique. Uh, very interesting story about Thompson. He was born in Massachusetts, uh, but he was a loyalist. He favored uh, the king and he was against the American Revolution. So when the revolution broke out, he had to flee to behind the British lines where he was welcomed because he had some information about the American military and also because he already was a scientist and he knew how to improve the manufacture of gunpowder and how to determine the explosive potential of gunpowder. Of course, after the revolution, he had to leave America and he went to England and uh, there he became royal scientist to the king under King George III and also his minister of war. But he ran into a little trouble when supposedly he sold some naval secrets to the French, but he was too valuable for the, to the British, so he was spared punishment when he agreed to uh, be sent as a diplomat to Bavaria and act as a spy there. But once he was there, he severed his British ties and he became a scientific consultant to uh, Duke Carl Theodore, who was uh, Bavaria's ruler at the time. Bavaria was a very poor country with lots of beggars who had no work. And Thompson was given the task of solving that problem. And he came up with the idea of workhouses where the poor could earn some money while serving as a source of cheap labor. This is what got him interested in food and nutrition. How could the workers be fed given that food was in short supply? So he developed a soup based on pearl barley, yellow peas, potatoes, and beer that was cheap and according to the knowledge of the time, nutritious. For his scientific efforts, he was made a count in Bavaria. And when asked to choose a name, he chose Rumford because that is where he got his start in New Hampshire. Uh, it was a town called Rumford. Later, it became Concord. Uh, Count Rumford's soup became a common, inexpensive military ration, and it was christened Rumford's soup. His kitchen exploits also led to the percolating coffee pot, the double boiler, and an improved pressure cooker, and a machine for drying potatoes. It was that machine that would lead Rumford being recognized as a man who laid the cornerstone to low-temperature cooking. Quote, desirous whether it would be possible to roast meat in a machine I had contrived for drying potatoes, I put a shoulder of mutton into it. And after attending to the experiment for three hours and finding it showed no signs of being done, I concluded that the heat was not sufficiently intense and I abandoned my shoulder of mutton to the cookmaids. Well, these women put out the fire under the machine and figured the meat could be stored there overnight as well as anywhere else. In the morning, they were surprised to find the meat cooked and not merely eatable, as they said, but perfectly done and most singularly well tasted. Well, it turns out that that well tasting was due to the, uh, the fact that the food had cooked at a very low temperature for a very long time. And uh, his conclusion was that this low temperature cooking uh, was desirable not only to bring out flavor, but also because it saved on fuel. He said that at the time, people were constantly boiling food and cooking it at a temperature of boiling water, which needed a lot of, of, of fuel under the uh, cooking vessel. And he said that if 
it were cooked at a lower temperature, the food could be cooked for a longer time and it would still be perfectly done. And this really was the beginning of, of what we now refer to as sous vide cooking. Uh, the idea of the uh, low temperature uh, cooking was uh, resuscitated in the uh, 1970s by a French chef by the name of Georges Pralu, who discovered that his foie gras cooked at a low temperature in a vacuum sealed plastic bag that was immersed in water and kept uh, at uh, a steady temperature uh, lower than the boiling point of water. It retained its fat content and it had a better texture. And other chefs began to experiment with this sous vide technique, which means under vacuum, and discovered that the vacuum was not essential and the technique could work just by squeezing out the air from the plastic bag. Uh, as devices that allowed temperature to be precisely controlled in a pot of water became commercially available, home cooks began to experiment and found the results to be very satisfactory, except for the one troubling point that I mentioned earlier, and that is that the meat does not become brown. But this can be remedied by searing it after the long-term low temperature uh, cooking. Today, many, many restaurants use the sous vide technique because it allows them to pre-cook the food and uh, then just sear it uh, when the orders come in and it comes out perfectly tasty. And uh, of course, it is even browned because of the uh, searing. It's also interesting that way back then in the uh, 1700s, uh, Thompson was already concerned about the fact that a lot of energy was being wasted by boiling the water when you can cook food very well at a temperature lower than the boiling of, of water. And uh, today, of course, we're trying to conserve energy everywhere and uh, cooking at lower temperatures, of course, uh, contributes to energy uh, conservation. So th there you go. Uh, that's the uh, story of uh, sous vide uh, cooking. And uh, today you can get this device that you immerse into a large pot of water and it will keep the water at the uh, temperature. And of course, there are recipes, uh, exact recipes about which food should be kept at what temperature. And it will also stir the water to make sure that there are no cold or hot spots in that, that water. Uh, a lot of people are, are trying this, especially this past year when people had to stay home because of, uh, of COVID. So sous vide uh, cooking became uh, very popular. But now you know that its history goes back a couple of hundred years. And Benjamin Thompson, who was later known as uh, Count Rumford, was the originator. He also was the originator of the Royal Institution in Great Britain, uh, which um, uh, initiated the public lectures by Humphrey Davy and Michael Faraday. So certainly uh, Benjamin Thompson or Count Rumford uh, refer, uh, uh, deserves our, uh, our thanks for many things, including sous vide cooking and for founding the Royal Institute of Science. But that's it for today. We have run out of time. And we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.